Welcome to the Kingpins podcast, Denim Talks, the place where we talk about all things denim. I'm fashion journalist Allison Nieder. And I'm Erin Barajas, Director of Communications for Kingpins. Hey there, just Allison this week. Thank you to everyone who turned out for the launch of Kingpins 24, the online event held in place of the cancelled Amsterdam show. The entire Kingpins team worked hard in record time to put the event together, and the support from the industry was really amazing. For the event, I had the chance to interview Sanjeev Ball, the owner of Cytex, the denim factory in Vietnam. The initiatives Sanjeev put in place at Cytex are truly inspirational. He graciously gave me a lot of time, over Zoom of course, to talk about some of those initiatives, as well as share some of his thoughts about the impact of the COVID-19 pandemic and the way forward for Cytex and the industry. We only had time for a brief excerpt from our interview during Kingpin's 24, so for this episode of Kingpin's Talks, I'm presenting the full interview. I hope you enjoy it. Cytex is considered the cleanest denim factory in the world and an organization designed to be a force for good. Sanjeev was operating his denim business like a conventional factory until 2010, when he decided to reset the business with the goal of creating a company that makes a positive impact that could lead to a model of prosperity. To do that, he decided to take 0.1% of top-line revenue and invest in programs to alleviate hunger and poverty. Currently, the company operates five facilities in Vietnam and employs more than 4,000 people. Sanjeev has implemented a number of initiatives at his factory to make the denim-making process cleaner, less wasteful, and more socially equitable. Cytex is a fair trade certified factory, which means that it has extremely high social sustainability standards, and for each fair trade garment produced, part of the profit goes to a fund the employees are empowered to decide how to use. Cytex also has programs aimed at the social well-being of the company's employees, their families, and the surrounding community. You can find out more about these programs at Cytex.com. We'll also have some of this information at kingpinshow.com. I would like to start our conversation by addressing the COVID-19 crisis, which has already impacted the denim business around the world. And what I'd like to talk to you about is what do you think that we as an industry need to do right now? Where do you see the industry going and what does the future look like for apparel and denim? Yeah, thanks for having me, Alison. So before we talk about the future, I just want to reconnect with the past and what has brought us up to this uh, state of affairs that we are in today. Our industry has been... I would say a very insecure industry. And the insecurities has been built continuously, consistently over a period in time. What actually transpired was production moved from the West to the East and it kept on moving on a platform called production. So we all lost sight of productivity. And once you move into the production model, it becomes a commodity model step-by-step. It gets very cost-driven and we lose sight of innovation, efficiency, and we just keep driving the business into a labor arbitrage model. So due to this model of labor arbitrage, migration crops up consistently. So, you know, you move from one country to the next, to the next, to the next, cheaper, 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 until, you know, you're at the end of the totem pole. And once you start driving the business on a migration model, insecurity keeps on piling up. So that insecurity doesn't allow futuristic, innovative, capital-intensive projects which are built on productivity to emerge. With that in mind, it, you know, the models that have been created in the past have not been models that have been built on long-term value creation methods. So that's why you find these silos where the brands are on one side and there's a big wall between the brand and the factories, right? There's, they call it, they, they, they talk about transparency, but there's no real transparency. They talk about partnership, but it's a, it's a big word, but it means very less. And all this has come to a head right now. 
and everything that everybody knew of and were fearful of, but never got truly exposed because there was no such situation like a global pandemic that has forced people to, to show who they truly are. Now, over a period in time, because of this cost-driving commodity mechanism that the business has been, prices have been challenged, fast fashion has emerged, and you know, legacy businesses have been completely devastated. Cash flows have been impacted. A lot of businesses in the fashion business and who are challenged, I mean, who are heavily in debt and are challenged financially. All it needed was a situation like COVID to expose that layer of comfort that has been created, which has been extremely false, as we all know. So now everybody's been uh, forced to evaluate the situation because of the current state of affairs. You're seeing the aftermath, knee-jerk reactions, reckless behavior. Again, it's coming more out of insecurity, survival, uh, not being in a position to maintain cash flows from the client side. And then there are some people who are taking advantage of it. So they, they realize that this is a time to clean up. This is a time to hold on to their cash. And, you know, it's a herd mentality. If this brand is doing it, I can do the same thing. There's very little empathy in the business. So the impacts you know, at the worker level can be seen. I mean, people can read how many millions of people are going to lose their jobs. These are poor people. They do not have social security. They do not have the comforts that most people in the Western world have. And, you know, if you ask me where the true impact is, I hope we don't create social anarchy due to this reckless behavior. So, yeah, I would say, you know, we, we are at uh, the tipping point and it's only going to get worse over the next couple of months before, you know, things flatten out and things are reset. I'd like to talk a little bit about this idea of a reset. You and I have spoken a little bit about it. We know what maybe some of the industry will do, but what should, say, the denim community, the people who we like to think are forward-thinking and innovative in terms of how they run their business, what should they be doing and what should they be looking at? Well, you know, again, you know, I mean, going back into the past, I would classify businesses into two buckets, right? So you have the first bucket, which is traditional, and you know it's an old model, it's very transactional. The old model is pretty one-sided from the get-go. There's no real equal partnership. And like I mentioned earlier, there's a wall that has been created between the consumer, the brand, the factory. So it's, this wall needs to be torn down. Mm-hmm. There's no seamless alignment available in the old business model. Again, the accountability is very one-sided. You know, the factory is always under pressure to deliver on time and face penalties for quality or delivery or uh, they get rated uh, based on how communicative they are, et cetera, et cetera. So it's been very, accountability has been very Mm one-sided. And now that credibility is at stake, uh, many of these businesses uh, will be forced to move out. You know, some of them are going to rethink the global sourcing strategy and some of them will just disappear. So that'll open up the opportunities to the new model. You know, I consider the new model to be what should have emerged 10, 15 years ago, a model which is built on, you know, smart manufacturing, uh, a digital model, which is uh, AI driven and has a predictable methodology to predict consumption. Right. And that consumption prediction engine should be able to create a very rapid design to delivery model. There's very little collaboration I see between design and factories today. I see a lot of collaboration between manufacturing, quality, and development, but I do not see that design piece being collaborated with factories, at least, you know, I mean, I'm sure it's available in some businesses, but I talk about denim in in particular right now. Mm -hmm. So I see that emerging, but on a digital level, 
which would allow a model which is built on speed, agility, and you know you would need components of verticality, which would mean that you're just not local, but you're global as a manufacturer. You don't need to build big factories. I see smaller factories like microbreweries sprouting up all over the place, which would be small mini service centers where you do not need distribution facilities as well. You know, clients do not need distribution facilities. So this would be taking away the, the waste and it would allow the brands to focus on what they're really good at, which is marketing. And then, you know, have a collaborative process across the whole uh, supply chain from design to delivery. And of course, you know, I see customization being uh, very relevant. I see customization at scale, not, you know, those one pieces, two pieces, you know, do you like this yellow, green, brown, blue, pink, black, not that kind of a theory, but massive customization at scale. So factories would have to be designed differently in the future, where it could be, you know, single piece systems, but, you know, volumetric single piece systems. And, you know, eventually the new model of smart manufacturing, which is digitized, would shatter the boundaries that have been created in the past. So it would be a seamless alignment between business and consumer. So, you know, versus the B2C and B2B, the way business is right now, I see the future business to be a big B and it goes from B to B to C all seamlessly aligned. Mm -hmm. So, yes, so overall a smart AI driven predictable digital model which bundles up design to delivery and all the components that would free the brands from logistics, you know, all the other things that they continue to, to shoulder. How feasible is it to move to that? Is it a incremental shift or is this a monumental shift? Well, you know, I mean, shifts take place continuously. You know, we have generations, they're all generational shifts. So if you look at different levels of generations, you know, today you have Gen Zs, Gen Y, Gen X, the baby boomers. So you have all different generations at play. And each generation has had different levels of behavior when it came to purchase. The future generations are very tech savvy and they've just created a brand new method of commerce, which is social commerce. And they have created their own little path on connectivity. And their behavioral patterns towards purchase are very fiercely independent. If they trust something, then you have to verify that trust, of course. But once you have, you know, their trust, then it's a matter of not trying to sell them too much. First of all, this whole model in the past is make more, make more, sell more, sell more, sell more, and influence people to buy more. So keep discounting it as you need and keep on creating this whole false demand. And if you can't sell it, then dump it into the landfill and create more waste and create a bigger problem for the planet. I think that model will slowly go away. And I think that the new generation would adapt into futuristic technological place that business would have to offer. Again, you know, I mean, people don't talk about 3D printing, but, you know, that's a huge powerhouse into the future that will empower the consumer to probably print what they want. Hopefully one day it'll be apparel as well. I mean, if somebody's listening to me talk about this, they'll think I'm, uh, I'm a lunatic. But you know what? I wouldn't be surprised 10 years later, we'll be sitting and having the same chat saying that, hey, you know, we spoke about printing and here it is. So I see technological disruption that will create a brand new method of manufacturing and distribution. Last year, Cytex became a big corporation. And I'd like to talk a little bit about how that works. You know, we became, we got certified as a B Corp last year. But, you know, I got to tell you, from day one, we modeled a business around, I always say this, you know, doing the right thing. And I think what we did was without recognizing it and building stories around it, all we wanted to do was to do something right and to build a model which we felt 
was a responsible model and it was socially, environmentally and fiscally responsible at the end of the day. And all our actions, decisions, investments that we made were always thought through with three things in mind. How does this decision impact people? How does this decision impact the planet? What impact does it have financially? So I must admit, you know, we could have been a lot more profitable than we are. Thank God we are profitable. But I think we made a lot of long-term value creation investments, which of course at some times you wonder whether it's the right thing to do. But once you are driven internally with a conscience to do the right thing, then those kind of investments don't matter. So connect the dots, come full circle, uh, we checked the box on several fronts, you know, socially, ethically, environmentally, fiscally. And we went through a long, long haul of audits. And what came out at the end of the day was a validation, a validation that we'd built a business which was for purpose, a validation that we always thought our business was a force for good, a validation that, that we've been given a tool, you know, and we are custodians of this tool. And it's not just for money. How can we look beyond a white picket fence? How can we build communities? How can we create inclusivity? How can we use this tool for betterment of society? How can we use this tool for, for the betterment of the environment? What kind of a legacy would we leave for our kids in the future? All these questions that we had once we got certified, you know, it, it just validated every, every moment that we had, have spent over the past 20 years to build this business. It's just uh, gratifying and humbling to be recognized for all the seeds that we have sown and for it to just mushroom into a plant that it is today, it's, um, it's a fantastic feeling. I have also heard you speak about the idea that to be sustainable, you know, as vague as a term as that may be, that you do not have to sacrifice profitability. You have looked at and you've sort of explored ways that you could be both profitable and sustainable. And I wanted to talk about your concept of circularity. Yeah, I'm glad you shifted the conversation from sustainability to circularity because sustainability, I think it's been used and abused. Anybody and everybody can just say whatever they want and get away with it. And it's become fashionable to call yourself sustainable. So thank you for moving away from that term. We've graduated, we moved away. You know, we talk about circularity more than sustainability today. Going back to first, I think you need to be profitable to be sustainable. If you don't make money at the end of the day, if your business doesn't make money, there's nothing you can do, right? You can't do anything for the people or, the, or for the planet. So, you know, what we did is we crafted out a strategy, a long-term strategy. It wasn't like, oops, you know, what do we get out of this tomorrow day after? So, of course, there's low-hanging fruit. So we looked at radical resource productivity. We looked at green chemistry. We looked at biomimicry. We looked at different facets that where we could re-engineer our processes, our factories, our systems to be more efficient, right, on all fronts. So we looked at biomass instead of fossil fuels. And it needed a little bit more investment initially than later. But guess what? It paid off in a couple of years. And today we are far more efficient and far more cheaper than fossil fuel. It takes time. We did the same thing with water, you know. We took water because, first of all, there's a shortage of water. My heart breaks every time I see people with inadequate sanitation. People, you know, there's a water shortage globally. And I would hate to ever see in my lifetime or in my kids' lifetime and our kids' lifetimes wars being fought over water. So what we could do was to conserve, preserve, and don't take water for granted, right? So we built this recycling facility. It cost a lot, multi-million dollars, whatever. But it took three, four years to break even. But, you know, once we broke even with the investment, we realized that by recycling water, you actually save money. 
because you know you do have to pay the industrial zones money for water and if you discharge it then they charge you for recycling so you just treated it more as a radical resource productivity measure and so on and so forth so you know we kept on deploying long term capex into you know the peripherals and the support systems around the business which took a while like i said for it to come through but it paid off because we were determined to make sure it succeeded so we just silently built our own little gear of change and that theory of change had to prove itself at the end of the day to be profitable so yes measures uh, i don't want to call it sustainability if you take measures towards radical resource productivity you take make investments into innovation you make investments into green chemistry you deploy um, investments into robotics work through biomimicry i think you can run a pretty holistic enterprise which does not focus only on labor arbitrage you know and i think that's something that i would encourage most businesses to look at and due to this covid crisis this is the best point in time for people to reset into that mentality so we are moving ahead beyond sustainability we moved ahead actually because it really annoyed us uh, this whole thing about i'm so green i'm so green and you know we just didn't want to talk about it anymore because that's so sickening so what we did is we said you know water energy all that fun stuff that we've done in the past let that be the past that foundation has been set for us the future is how do we convert a commodity into a value based product so i've always been inspired by the automobile industry today you can go and pay 400 dollars a month 600 dollars a month and you know these a car and you drive the car for 3 or 4 years or whatever return the car you're off to the next so it doesn't really pain you to pay hundreds and thousands of dollars for a car and then hold on to it and then find it to dispense it so apparel has not moved in that direction it's uh, it's more or less still a commodity based transaction it's impulsive it's very um, emotional that purchase so people buy it wear it throw it away but if you work on a circular model and you encourage people to buy it wear it and return it and return it to us for us to repurpose it remodel it and build something more valuable at the end of the day than what you had got into so we built a whole program called recut they have the ability to upcycle the base product into something far more valuable and we should hopefully be launching a renewable marketplace shortly where people can uh, send us product to renew and then we could upcycle it and upscale it and upsell it for them and they can enjoy the profits so for them it becomes an investment not a commodity we also under recut we have launched furniture we have a proprietary technology where we can take textiles from any shape size for content from landfills or returns crush it into nanoparticles and build this beautiful material which becomes a substitute for wood i swear to you it's far more sexier than wood we're doing flooring facades furniture all sorts of things with it so the product is of much higher value mm-hmm. and that can again further be recycled into other components into smaller smaller you know product categories that we have we are pushing the boundaries where we are encouraging our clients and hopefully we live in a b2b to c world where we can collaborate with our clients and inject the seamless alignment where you know our jeans don't are just not commodity anymore they are a value proposition and every dollar counts and there has to be a return on investment for the consumer versus a purchase decision so i think we don't talk about sustainability now and we're just really hardcore focused on circularity it's interesting to think of something that could be considered waste and rethinking that as a raw material yes that's radical resource productivity that's what it teaches you how do you take the every little piece of waste and convert it into an input 
mm-hmm. for manufacturing. So again, if you look at most of our plants and if you look at most of our businesses, the future is focused you know, on taking waste and converting it into an input. And that input eventually gives you an output, but along the path that all the components between input and output, those become value propositions. And there's waste along the way. So you keep on taking the waste along the way and reconverting that waste into higher value propositions. So that's a good call and a good question that you just posed. You know, I'd encourage companies to continuously look at all byproducts that they keep on creating through the whole value chain and use that as an opportunity to create an input into some other processes in your value stream. It will help you to reduce your cost and make you a lot more efficient as well. How did you get from being a traditional manufacturer to the way you look at business today? I had my reset moment as well several years ago. And, you know, it's like I was telling you, you know, you have to sleep with yourself. You have to wake up yourself. And, you know, I wasn't feeling good being part of a transactional mentality and, you know, emulating and walking on that beaten path. And it was pretty alarming. You know, prior to setting up our own manufacturing, you know, Cytex, uh, we were sourcing uh, garments from other factories globally. We ran operations in eight, nine countries. So I had the ability to visit and work very closely with over 50 factories globally. You know, what I saw was pretty shocking between how women were treated, between how, I mean, I just saw modern day slavery, let's put it that way. I saw an abundant disrespect for the environment, for people. And of course, that had a huge impact on my thought process. And I used to wonder, why am I doing this the way it's being done? And once I had the opportunity to set up our own manufacturing facility here in Vietnam, it just helped us to build a model which we were totally responsible for and something that we could sleep comfortably with. I do want to talk to you about some of your expansion plans. You recently announced plans to expand and open new facilities in Los Angeles. How does the current crisis affect those plans? Has it changed at all? Well, let's talk about the human race. I think the human race is a very resilient race. We've conquered a lot. We've gone through wars. We've gone through pandemics. We've gone through all sorts of disruptions. You know, climate change, fires, financial systems crashing. Listen, you know, in my little lifetime, I've seen a lot. So, you know, what we've also learned is opportunity is equal to need plus capability. I think this is a time where you build that model into the future. If you're afraid, you just stay in the present and the present is nothing but you know, a mirror that you're staring into of the past. So the future for us is to be vertical, you know, to be digital, like I mentioned earlier, have the C2 market component, be very responsive on manufacturing and be extremely holistic and clean with, with your approach. So yeah, so uh, not stopping our plans. We're not even, I mean, you're just waiting for Los Angeles to settle down a little bit. Once it settles down, you know, we're on our way. And the factory in, in Los Angeles is very exciting. It's everything that we've incubated in terms of technology, robotics, artificial intelligence, digital assets, they're all being deployed in the LA factory. So it should be the factory of the future, literally in line with Industry 4.0. So that should be interesting to see how effective it could be. It's an experiment. And I hope that experiment works because if it does, definitely have the opportunity to bring manufacturing back with a force, um, you know, in small microbrewery stages across the U.S. and elsewhere, you know, on the planet, which would be effective both in terms of speed, quality, agility, and price. Additional to the factory, construction still continues, our plans still continue. For a mill, it's also based in Vietnam, but mill is a very exciting proposition. Hopefully, as we've been recognized and considered as the cleanest denim manufacturing plant on the planet, I'm not seeking labels here and I'm not looking at creating labels around our mill, but I would say this would be a very novel proposition 
which would check the boxes on social responsibility, environmental responsibility, and fiscal responsibility. This would be an amazing model which the world would have the opportunity to emulate and follow so that the mills of the future would not look like what they look like today. So that would additionally, it's a huge investment, but that would give us the speed, flexibility, speed to market, transparency, verification of the materials that we put into it to build a very powerful LCA life cycle analysis and to confidently put on a garment from seed to shelf what did it take in terms of whether it's CO2 emissions, whether it's carbon positive, carbon neutral, how much water was used in the whole product from seed to shelf, how much energy was used versus just saying, oh, you know what, we have a factory and we have a laundry and we use so much uh, energy. I think the consumer needs to be told the truth. And the truth is it's in all the components from seed to shelf to truly expose to the consumer that, hey, this has been made in a very responsible way from beginning to the end. And it also has a life, you know, after life. So I think the investments are critical to disrupt the old and to build future digital paths. So yes, so we continued with that as well as some online initiatives of customization and predictable manufacturing models in the digital space. What is your timeline for Los Angeles? To be honest, it should have opened a few months ago, but we kept on changing things to make it better and better. That created some delays. And now with this whole situation with you know the lockdown, I think Q4, if everything opens up in May, June, which I'm hoping and praying it does, definitely towards the fag end of Q3, beginning of Q4, we should be fully operational. Mill should be fully operational Q4 as well. But okay. you know, in steps and stages, right. you know, we, we're still staying on plan, and you know, it's pretty ambitious. But hopefully, we'll cross the finish line and be ready for uh, the future. And I think 2020 is uh, the reset year, as we started talking about. It means we reset everything and but don't walk away from the future you know reset everything that we have on our plate just get ready for 2021 well thank you so much for taking the time to speak with me Alison, it's a pleasure and before we sign off you know all i would request people to do is to pray hard for all the people out there people who we don't know who we can't touch who we can't feel but you know please pray hard for people uh, who are suffering today and just pray hard that we all pull through this thing together prayers what is needed right now thank you so much thanks Alison. for photos and videos please visit kingpinshow.com we will have industry news trend content street style galleries store and designer profiles and more podcasts plus you can find information and updates about our shows in new york amsterdam hong kong and china Thanks for listening.